Take your Bible and turn over to 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, if you would. We're back to 2 Peter after about six weeks off, and uh, try to do a little review here as we get into verses 8 through 11 today. But first of all, I thought about a story I read this week about the sea squirt. The sea squirt is a very strange creature. It's found attached to rocks and shells at the bottom of the ocean, and uh, it looks like a soft plastic tube, and it just kind of waves in the current, drawing its nutrients from any of the things, the water and the things that bring it by. He feeds itself, and, uh, but he was once very active in his youth instead of attaching himself to something. The, the sea squirt starts out with a tad, like a tadpole and with a primitive spinal cord and has a brain. And over time, the brain and everything tells it where to go, where to get the food, But then when he reaches adulthood, something very unusual happens. He attaches himself to some kind of a rock or a shell, and then in a strange twist, he eats his brain. And so then he's just attached, and whatever the current brings, he just passively lays there and is fed by whatever comes his way. So think about that, and as we think about growing in Christ, we can't be passive as believers in Christ. We can't just allow whatever the current brings our way. We can't be haphazard about what we do. We can't be spineless, thoughtless, and flowing passively with the current. And the Apostle Peter encourages us not to follow the sea squirt's fate, since maturity for us means taking on God's uh, knowledge in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, and having that divine nature that's within us. You and I, as Peter will tell us throughout this book, that we're called to grow to grow mentally in our knowledge of Christ, to grow spiritually in the traits in chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, the things he laid out there. We're to grow practically by exploring new ways to love, to offer hospitality, to serve using our gifts in 1 Peter chapter 4. Such growth, Peter says, will stop us from living ineffective and unproductive lives, as we're going to talk about when we get to verse 8 of chapter 1 in 2 Peter. So let's be more like Peter and the Apostle Paul taking spiritual growth seriously and urgently and not be passive like that sea squirt who just goes with the current. We have to learn to build up our spiritual muscles so we can paddle against the world's current as we go upstream, as we seek the truth. Let's look at God's word together in 2 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to back up to verse 5. Verse 5, and go through verse 11. It says, For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness. Verse 7, And to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And may God add his blessing at the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful that as we open your word, as we heard through the music, that you've prepared our hearts to receive what you have for us today. We're told in Isaiah 55 that your word does not return void, that it carries out its purpose 
its plan as it goes forth. And I pray that we will have open hearts, open minds to receive what you have today by the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the more we become like Jesus, the more we glorify God, and the more the Holy Spirit can use us to witness for Christ and to serve him. That is why spiritual growth is so vitally important. First thing on your outline, a Christ follower will bear righteous fruit. A Christ follower will bear righteous fruit. We see the evidences of fruit. Now, we don't work for our salvation. We'll talk about that. We receive it by grace, but... After we come to faith in Christ, the evidence of the faith in us is our works. James says, faith without works is dead. So we show evidences of the fruit that's within us. In verse 8 of chapter 1, 2 Peter, for if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me say, God does not want his children miserable or doubting their salvation. He desires each one of us to be filled with joy and confidence. So if a believer is going to walk in joy and confidence and enjoy the abundant life promised here on earth, we need to pursue the qualities mentioned in verses 5 through 7. They're given to us when we receive that divine nature, when the Holy Spirit came to indwell our hearts and lives when we receive Christ as Savior. It's not something we can work up, but it's given to us. And then we develop what is already part of our new nature through the reading of God's word and prayer. Psalm 33.1 says, Sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise him. It is fitting for the upright to praise him. We're to be filled with joy. We have so much to praise God for and thank him daily because of his faithful care and his providing for our needs. In verse 8, Peter says that these qualities are yours, are increasing. That word yours is a word picture that someone who owns property, who enjoys using the property and is developing the property the way they want it, the way they want to use it. The word possess here means it's, that it's more than enough. It's even too much of something. We have, as it says in 2 Peter 1, there's a divine nature that provides us all things that pertains to godliness. Growing in the character qualities in verses 5 through 7 will keep you from being ineffective. That phrase, keep you, means to make something or set something in order. Ineffective means useless, inactive, inoperable, something that can't be serviced. We've lived in our house for 13 years. Shortly after we moved in, the first thing that went was the refrigerator. So we went over to Zeglin's and we bought a refrigerator. And, you know, we, were, we thought that refrigerators last 12, 15 years because that's what they always used to do. But year eight, all of a sudden, we had problems. So we called Zeglin's, we had the repairman come out. It took a week to get him out there. We were nursing our refrigerator with buying ice and trying to do everything we could uh, until he came. And then he came and looked at it and he said, there's no way I can fix this. It's, in, in repa- it's irreparable. You can't do anything with it because they make them now so that you can't get to the compressor and to the parts. And so guess what? We had to buy a brand new refrigerator, but this time we bought a warranty. So we were smart. <laughs> so we know what things are. I had a TV, an old TV that just went dead. What do you do? You take it to electronic waste. You can't fix these things. Peter says, don't be ineffective. Don't be useless. Don't be inoperable. P- 
Peter goes on in verse 8 to say, I'm productive. If we're not diligently working to grow in these areas of our life, we become unproductive here means unfruitful or barren. This can lead to falling away into false teaching or, as we hear a lot about, the deconstructing of your faith by some people and living in unbelief of God and his ways. Peter is talking in this book to Christ followers, to true believers of him. He says at the end of the verse there, verse 8, true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So believers at times can live unproductive lives. This is like living as a professing Christian, someone who's merely going through the motions, but living like the world. We call these people carnal Christians. Since you and I, as believers, have a true knowledge of Christ, we're to pursue more of the knowledge and relationship with God. And the more we pursue it, then we apply the knowledge by doing what we're told to do through these virtues and build them up in our life. The fruit are the proof of true knowledge. And remember, the true knowledge and growing is something that's done by obeying what God says when he prompts us through prayer, through scripture, through whatever means, the circumstances around us to obey him and building that relationship up. Knowledge from God is applied wisdom. When we obey God and we take the knowledge he's given to us, it becomes godly wisdom when we apply it to our lives. In John 17, 3, Jesus said, Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. To know God, that's true knowledge. In John 8, 31 and 32, Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. 2 Corinthians 2.14, it talks about us as believers because of this knowledge. We're to be that aroma to share the knowledge with others. But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. Warren Wiersbe said, some of the most effective Christians I've known are people without dramatic talents and special abilities or even exciting personalities. Yet God has used them in a marvelous way. Why? Because they're becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. They have the kind of character and conduct that God can trust with blessing. They're fruitful because they're faithful. They're effective because they're growing in their Christian experience. End of quote. As my former pastor used to say many times, God's more interested in our availability than he is our ability. God is looking for people who are willing to surrender and to be used. He's more interested in building a relationship with you than what you do in service and honor with him. And so the effects, the effects, second of all, the spiritual amnesia, the effects he talks about in verse 9. But whoever does not have them, these virtues that we talked about, verses 5 through 7, is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. If we're ineffective and unproductive in the growing of our knowledge, it will leave us wondering where we stand with God. How's our relationship with Him? Do we have a connection? And if so, what is it? Beyond the list of virtues listed here in this chapter, much like Galatians 5, 22 and 23, I believe there'll be evidence of a changed life and living, growing relationship with Christ. 
So I want to just share briefly some 10 things that I didn't put in the notes. And if you want to write them down, I encourage you to do that. These are 10 evidences, 10 evidences. And if you don't have time to write all these down, you can go to uh, our website and to this sermon and there's the sermon notes will be there. But this is from a sermon. We're going to give you two sermons for the price of one today. A sermon I preached, the third sermon I preached here in February of 2009 when I first became pastor. Here's a way to check your spiritual health and see if it's alive and growing. These should be evident. Most of these should be evident in a believer's life. First of all, an awareness of sin. You should have a sense that when you do something wrong, you are convicted. You are convicted of that sin. You have a sense that you've hurt God. You've grieved the Holy Spirit. A chastened life. If God truly loves you, he's not going to let you continue to walk away from him, walk in sin. He's going to discipline you. He's going to do things to show you in a loving way to draw you back in relationship to him because you're part of his family. Another evidence that you're a believer is a love for other Christians. Jesus said, the world will know that you are Christians by the love you have for one another. How as a believer in Christ forgiven of sin can you not love other believers as well? Fourthly, a disdain for the things of this world system. A disdain. Not that, you know, this world is God's creation and we enjoy the pleasures and the benefits of it because we use it to glorify God. But I'm talking about the world system that is in opposition to the things of God. And fifthly, a hunger for God's word. Do you desire? I remember when I first got saved in 1972, I began to read this like the word of God was going out of style. I just, it became alive to me. And I hope it does that for you as well. The next five are this, a changed life. A changed life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that old things are passing away. Behold, all things are becoming new. Those verbs are in the present tense. It's a process. You should have a desire to share your story. Proverbs 11.30 says that he that winneth souls is wise. To share what Christ has done in your life. You should have a sense of the Holy Spirit working in your life. You can tell where he's leading you, directing you. A knowledge of God's will for your life. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not in your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. And it answers to prayer. Have you seen evidence that when you pray, God answers it? may not always be the way you want it to be answered, but he's answering your prayers. I would encourage you to look at your spiritual life, and if most, if not all these things, are not evident in your life, then it's time to do a spiritual health check and make sure that you're in relationship with the Heavenly Father. Peter is saying here in verse 9, that if you don't have most, if not all these things being evidence in our lives, we're either a non-believer or a carnal Christian. A carnal Christian is one who is a believer but is not living for the Lord and walking in the worldly lifestyle. He says there in verse 9, nearsighted and blind, not able to see because one's eyes are closed or squinting to look at things in the distance. They don't see the big picture of what God is doing. This week I thought about that. How do we keep our physical eyes healthy? And I looked that up. WebMed, the website, talked about how smoking is a real deterrent to good eye health. Making sure you wear protective eyewear when you're working a job that could potentially send something into your eye. 
But the number one thing is to eat well. Eat well. Good eye health starts with the food on your plate. Nutrients like omega-3 fatty acids, lutein, zinc, vitamin C and E. They might help ward off age-related vision problems like macular degeneration and cataracts. So how do you get those? Well, you fill your plate with green leafy vegetables like spinach, kale, collards, salmon, tuna, and other oily fish, eggs, nuts, beans, and other non-meat protein sources, oranges and other citrus fruits or juices, oysters and pork. And it's said that a well-balanced diet also helps you stay at a healthy weight that lowers your odds of obesity and related diseases like type 2 diabetes, which is the leading cause of blindness in adults. Think about that. So how does that pertain to us? Well, for us to have good vision, spiritual vision, we have to make sure we're eating regularly from the Word of God, that we're getting our nutrition from the Word of God. And when we forget that our sins have been forgiven before salvation, if we forget that, it can lead us back to the bad habits of sin that we used to do before coming to Christ. Notice in verse 9, the word cleanse. It means to purify, to restore to a, new, to a renewed condition. The other day I was walking around my house, I was looking at my heater vents, and sometimes over time they get, you know, stepped on and scratched or whatever. Sometimes I go to K&K and I'll spend $15 and buy new ones. Sometimes I'll just take my handy-dandy spray can of white paint and take them outside, and then boom, they look as good as new. And many of you women know that if you take clothing that has a stain on it, and you treat it, and you put it in a washing machine, you restore it back to the way it was, the way it looked when you first bought it. That's the idea here of cleansing, of taking away the stain. And when we forget that we are forgiven and neglect our relationship with God, then we forget to share Christ with others. We don't serve him. We don't give financially to him. We don't pray. And we're certainly not pleasing God with our lives. When we came to Christ and our sins were forgiven, we received new eyesight, spiritual eyesight. The blinders of sin were taken off and we could see God in our lives and all around us. It's so interesting that you look through the Old Testament, one of the main words you'll see is this word, remember. Remember. Think about it. The Israelites were told the priests were told to take up stones, 12 stones from the bed of the Jordan River as they headed into the promised land and set them up on the other side as memorial stones to remember the miracle that God separated the Jordan and took them over. You think about many of the wells in Israel and God gave them names or the people of events that happened with God at those places gave them names and those names were to remember what God has done. The celebration of feasts and festivals in the Old Testament were reminders of God's work in the past and a way to pass on these stories to the younger generations. Ephesians 5 says this, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Spiritual amnesia leads to blindness and we fall into all kinds of traps Satan has set for us. So we're to be mindful and remind ourselves of what God has done for us on our behalf for our good. So here's a question or two to think about. Are you and I seeing evidences of spiritual fruit in our service to God and to others? 
Are we obeying what God has already revealed to you to do from his word? I've learned over the years that God is going to give me more experience or knowledge of him until I obey what I already know to do. And when I do that, that's when he grows and, and grows the experience. And I know him in a fuller way. And he takes me to another level. Then we see thirdly in verse 10, the surety of our election into heaven. The surety of our election into heaven. In verse 10, it says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. Powerful, powerful verse there. Warren Wiersbe said, It's not our profession of faith that guarantees that we are saved. It's our progression in the faith that gives us that assurance. Knowing this, Peter says, make every effort, be diligent, make it a habit to grow in Christ by making your calling and election sure. Let me ask you, is there anything more important in this world that you could think about than your relationship with God? Is there anything more important than that? Please don't just roll the dice with your spiritual growth. Don't make haphazard attempts at it. Notice he says there in verse 10, confirm, be certain that you've answered the call of salvation. There are numerous calls in the Bible, but the most important one is salvation. After that comes a call to let Jesus be Lord of your life, to dedicate yourself to him. A call to your vocation a call to how God wants you to live your life, to be passionate about using your talents and gifts out in the workplace to make money or do ministry. For some, it's the call to marriage, and for some, it's a call to be a parent. There's a call for all of us as believers to use our spiritual gifts in worship and service to him in the local church. And then for all of us as believers, there's the last call, the call to heaven, to our eternal rest, to be with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Have you answered that call of salvation? You have to come to the place, as I did in 1972, where you realize that you're a sinner. And you realize that all the good things you could ever do, whether it's to go to have perfect attendance in Sunday school, which I strive to do, to give money, to serve in the choir at the Methodist Church, all those things I thought were going to get me to heaven. But when I realized that I'm a sinner, I'm separated from a holy God, and that it took Jesus to die on the cross and be the substitute for my sin and make the payment, and that he died, he was buried, he rose again. And when I realized that I need to turn away from my sin and ask him to come in and forgive me of my sin and be the Lord of my life, then that is when I have the assurance of salvation. One of the first verses I learned after salvation was this in 1 John 5, 13, through 14. This gave me the assurance of my salvation. It wasn't a feeling. It wasn't emotional. It was a contract that we make with God. It says in 1 John 5, 12, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life, that you may know, that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence that we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. I think of a pastor, George W. Truett, First Baptist Church, Dallas, Texas. W.A. Criswell came after him. Robert Jeffers is there now. And on his deathbed, after decades of ministry at First Baptist, they asked him what was his biggest concern. 
And weeping, he said, I, I, I believe that 50% of my congregation are still not believers in Jesus Christ. Please don't leave here today without knowing Christ as your Savior. As you hear this message today, you might be saying you're not sure about that relationship. I don't see any of these virtues or some of these virtues and few, few fruits of evidence in my life, and I wonder if I'm really saved. And you will be miserable because the Holy Spirit has been drawing you to Christ, but you haven't made that decision for Christ yet. Today is the day of salvation. In John 3.36, it says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. So if you're not a believer, your life will be miserable until you come to Him. And the wrath of God, it says in the present tense there, is abiding on you. But the bad news is if you leave this life without knowing Jesus, that wrath of God will be the torments of hell for all of eternity if you don't repent and turn to Christ. We see that word in verse 10, election, which means that God chose those and draws those whom he desires to be saved. And the good news is, is if God is faithful to do that, he's going to bring us to the end. We're going to persevere to the end and be guaranteed eternal life because God is faithful and he will keep his promise. He'll be faithful to carry you and I to complete maturity in Christ for eternity. Ephesians 1 says, for he chose us. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Philippians 1.6 is a great encouraging verse. It says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. If he starts the work in you, he's going to bring it through to the end. So if we do, as Peter says here in the beginning of this book, we will never stumble, we will never fail, we'll never get tripped up, and we won't go backwards in our faith. Romans 8 says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed, to be shaped into the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So the bottom line is this, once you made that decision to accept Christ as your Savior and you give him control of your life, as we obey and grow in Christ, we have the assurance of our salvation, the joy of abundant life, the confidence that we are walking as children of the King in good relationship with our Heavenly Father. But again, God's sovereign and he does his work, but we have a responsibility to do our part. Philippians 2 says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. We don't work to be saved, but we have responsibility afterward to do the works of God. One's godly behavior is a warranty deed for himself that Jesus Christ has cleansed him from past sins, and therefore that he was in fact called and elected by God. Queen Victoria once attended a service in St. Paul's Cathedral. She listened to a sermon that interested her greatly. She talked to her personal chaplain after the service. Can one be absolutely sure in this life of eternal safety? The chaplain said that he didn't think there was any way anybody could absolutely know that they would be going to heaven when they passed from this life. 
This incident was published in the court news and came to the notice of a minister named John Townsend. After reading of Queen Victoria's question and the answer she received, he prayed and then he sent the following note to the queen. You'll see it on the screen. To her gracious majesty, our beloved Queen Victoria, from one of our most humble subjects, with trembling hands but heart-filled love, and because I know that we can't be absolutely sure now for our eternal life in heaven that Jesus went to prepare, that we can be sure, may I ask your most gracious majesty to read the following passages of scripture, John 3.16, Romans 10, 9-10. I sign myself your servant, for Jesus' sake, John Townsend. And John Townsend wasn't alone in writing this letter. He had other friends and pastors praying to see what would happen. And they offered up a prayer on Her Majesty's behalf. And about two weeks later, she sent this reply to John Townsend. To John Townsend, I have carefully and prayerfully read the portions of Scripture referred to. I believe in the finished work of Christ for me and trust by God's grace to meet you in that home of which he said, I go to prepare a place for you, signed Victoria Golf. After Queen Victoria's discovery of Christian assurance, she used to carry a small booklet to give away to people. It was called Safety, Certainty, and Enjoyment. And that is what she found in Christ. Here's the application. Are you seeing evidences in your life that you are saved, that you're a believer in Jesus Christ? Are you seeing evidences, as we've talked about for the last number of minutes? If a church you attend doesn't know for sure how a person can have certainty of salvation and confidence that they're going to heaven, I would advise you to find another church. There are many churches that are not sharing the gospel and are not convinced that God can faithfully keep those whom he has elected to be saved. But the word of God teaches it very clearly. The next point is a Christ follower is destined for a heavenly reward. Great promise. As we see evidences in our life, Peter's talking to the beaten down, the weary, the persecuted believers to give them some hope. A Christ follower is destined for a heavenly reward. In 2 Peter 1.11, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The welcomed entrance into heaven. The welcome entrance into heaven. There was a pastor, he was meeting with a bunch of young kids and he was talking about heaven and he was sharing the gospel and he said, where do you want to go when you die? And they said, heaven. And then he said, how do you do that? And a little boy from the back yelled, die. <laughs> yeah, there's truth in that. But you also need to make sure you know Jesus before you die, right? <laughs> Wonderful words from kids. Entrance here is the picture of a victorious Olympian returning home to bask in his victory and to be welcomed by his family and friends in his or her hometown. And as we pursue, pursue spiritual growth through works of faith, we can live in sweet anticipation of a glorious meeting face-to-face -face with Jesus Christ. We'll be able to see the nails in his hands, the, the, the spot where the wound is, where the sword pierced his side, nails that pierced his feet as a reminder for all of eternity of what Jesus did to buy our salvation. And so as we think about that, we look forward to that day. I share, usually share a story in many funerals by Henry C. Morrison. He, was, he and his wife were missionaries in Africa. This was the turn of the 
20th century, early 1900s. And you know, when missionaries left to go to be missionaries in Africa from America, they got on a ship and they were gone. They didn't come back for furloughs or anything else. And these folks had been for four decades living in Africa. And they were retiring and they were coming home and they were on this ship. But Teddy Roosevelt, the president, had been over to Africa and he had been on a safari trip. And as they were coming into New York Harbor, Henry Morris and his wife were standing there and they saw all the pomp and circumstance. They were playing hail to the chief. They had a red carpet, all for the president. But Henry Morrison got a little sad because after 40 years of serving Jesus, no one was going to greet him at the port of entry. And a small, still voice came to Henry and said, don't worry, Henry, you're not home yet. You're going to have a greater celebration than even what Teddy Roosevelt will enjoy in just a few moments. Just remember, the best is yet to come. You're not home yet. So we see the receiving of our heavenly endowment. The receiving of our heavenly endowment. Rich here is the same word used earlier in this chapter. And at that time, I shared how as the history of the word was that of a choir director who was very wealthy and lavished all their money to, they could to make the performance wonderful for the people that are performing, but also the audience. They spent amounts, huge amounts of money on clothing and music and all the trappings to make it a beautiful event. He's saying that you're going to be rich, lavishly rich, when you get to heaven. And so we read in 1 Corinthians 2.9, However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. You just can't even imagine what we're going to experience when we get to heaven if you're a believer in Christ. Heaven will be worth it. You will never be disappointed because you follow Christ and you will enjoy the wonderful experience for eternity. Peter is saying that as a Christ follower, if we are constantly trying to obey God in his word and pursue holiness in our lives, we enjoy the blessings of the assurance of our salvation. We will persevere to the end because our faithful Heavenly Father will help us persevere because of the joy we will receive from Him that will never end and never be taken away. As I mentioned, these words were given to a group of persecuted believers who were beaten down, who were wondering if they were going to live another day because of their faith in Christ. Here's two promises to hold on to as we close today. Psalm 1611, You make known to me the path of life, you will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. And for those of us who've lost loved ones, who are believers, Psalms 116 says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful servants. There's a story about a pastor and the worship leader, and they, they love baseball, and they talked about baseball in the office. And they became avid baseball people. I mean, they went to, to games together. They watched it on TV and texted back and forth with one another. They even volunteered as coaches for the Little League in their area. Well, they began to talk one day and say, hey, is there going to be baseball in heaven? And they said, well, it's going to be a perfect place. And, you know, wouldn't that be amazing if baseball was there? And they made a pact that the first one that died would somehow, when they got to heaven, be try to send back word whether there was baseball in heaven or not. Well, wouldn't you know it, the preacher died first. And about a week later, 
the worship leader had a dream one night, and the dream was this. The pastor said, there's good news and bad news. The good news is there's baseball in heaven. The bad news is you're scheduled to pitch next Saturday. <laughs> so as we think about the idea of heaven, the application as we close, are you living in the grace and the hope of what's in store in the future? Are you living in that grace and that hope that we have to look forward to as seven? Peter wants us to persevere through whatever we are facing, knowing it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Here's our key thought just before we pray. The hope of heaven for the Christ follower is revealed by the fruit of heaven rooted in our salvation. Do you have the fruits of the heavenly father as we talked about early in the message? Do you know for sure that you know Christ as your savior? Are you growing in your spiritual walk with him? Let's bow for prayer. As we pray and sing our last song and extend the right hand of fellowship, I encourage you to just take a moment to look into your heart, look into your life. And if you're here today and maybe you say, you know, I'm not sure I'm not sure that I have that relationship with Christ. But I would like to know that. With every head bowed, every eye closed, everybody praying, maybe you're here and you're not sure that you have that assurance of eternal life. I just encourage you, no one's looking around but myself, just slip up your hand and I'll pray for you. Anyone at all. Anyone at all. Yes, anyone else that's not sure that they have that personal relationship with Christ, that assurance of salvation. Most important decision you could ever make in this life. Anyone else, just before we pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you for the beautiful good news of the gospel. We thank you that you make it so clear that a child can understand it, as well as someone who's in, in their 90s. Lord, I thank you that you wanted all to come to know you. You didn't want anyone to perish, but that all would come to repentance. So I pray for this one today that's not sure, that has some doubts, that God, you will help me to sit down, talk, pray together, and make sure of this decision. And for others that maybe didn't slip their hand up, Lord, if, you're, if they're doubting, we pray that you help them to come and to seek out and to seek you and to make sure of this most important decision for all of eternity. We pray and ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.